0: Good morning and welcome to Back Chat. I'm Janice Wong and your guest presenter is Rainbow Lung. Good morning, Rainbow. Hello and good morning. On today's program, we will discuss extreme heat as the average world temperature reached a record high of 17.18 degrees earlier this week. We certainly haven't been spared from the rising temperatures in this part of the world, with Beijing hitting 40.9 degrees on Wednesday. Meanwhile, 15 people were killed by floods in Chongqing as torrential rains drift through the megacity of 31 million. Experts say the high heat is a result of the El Nino weather event and ongoing emissions of carbon dioxide. So is the heat going to continue rising as El Nino strengthens? Will this inevitably bring more extreme weather? Can we still do something to stop it? After 9.45, we'll take a look at the new Kowloon City-themed Walking Trail. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at Backchat at RTHK.hk or give us a call on 233 Now, to kick off our discussion this morning, we have on the line Professor Benjamin Horton, Director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at Nanyang Technological University, Edwin Lau, a founder and executive director of the Green Earth, and Kitty Tam, who leads a decarbonization Program at the Public Policy Think Tank, Civic Exchange. Good morning to all of you, and uh, morning, thanks for joining everyone. us morning. on the programme. Good morning. Um, so, Professor Horton, let's start with you. Um, what do you think this new record means?
1: Um,
2: I mean, how, how best to say this? Uh, on Monday was the warmest day since records began, and then on Tuesday that record was broken. June is depicted to be the warmest month for 170 years. This decade is the warmest decade for around one and a half thousand years. And if we look at the 20th and the 21st century, we've not seen temperatures like this for 120,000 years. So I I, I just can't – it's very hard as a climate scientist to get all of those facts into your head, the warmest day, the warmest month, the warmest year, the warmest decade, the warmest century. And we know the causes of this, the underlying cause, is greenhouse gas emissions. But at certain times, it's amplified by natural variability. And in this case, the natural variability is we've gone into the El Nino phase of the El Nino Southern Oscillation.
0: Right. You mentioned that it's been amplified by the El Nino effect. But um, I, know, I know some experts are saying that the hot conditions are, are developing too quickly. I mean, even when you look at the El Nino effect, it usually um, uh, hits in December and uh, then it sends a global temperature soaring for months to follow. But now it seems to have started earlier. Is, is that correct?
2: Well, again, the climate community have been rather surprised at how fast the Pacific Ocean is warming up. So the El Nino southern oscillation, when you go into an El Nino phase, or indeed when you identify an El Nino, is because the sea surface temperatures in the Pacific are greater than average. What we see in the Pacific is that the rates of change are unprecedented. So the amount that it is warming up has taken us all by surprise. Our oceans are around, as a total, around five degrees C warmer than they should be. Again, another fact that should scare you listeners. It's the warmest our oceans have been for at least 170 years. So with El Nino, just like any other natural phenomenon, you can have a minor El Nino or a major El Nino. Southeast Asia has not seen a major El Nino since 1982 to 83. What the climate community is very worried about is that this is going to be a major El Nino on top of, a, since the 80s, a further 40 degrees, uh, 40 years of human-induced climate change. But I mean, one of the things that I find, I don't know, I just find it surprising. It's great that you're doing this radio show, but I find it really surprising that within the media, there isn't, in a way, hysteria about this. Monday was the warmest day since records began and it was beaten 24 hours later. We've got the warmest month, the warmest year, the warmest decade, the warmest century and we know the causes and we also know the solutions but we are not, the public are not panicking about this. They're not pushing the governments or corporations for immediate answers. There's not press conferences by world leaders about how they're going to deal with this. And that's what's surprising here
3: to me. And hello, Professor Horton. uh Rainbow here. So this El Nino event, um do, do, you, do we have any idea of how long it might last this time? And you've mentioned it comes with a double whammy of human-caused climate change. So... You know, can we expect supercharged weather conditions going forward? And if so, what would that look like?
2: Well, El Nino, natural phenomena are very difficult to predict, unlike human induced climate change. Human induced climate change uh, we first noticed the impact of, or first discovered the impacts of carbon dioxide in the middle of the nineteenth century. Uh, The first models of how carbon dioxide would impact the Earth were developed in the early part of the 20th century. Indeed, the oil industry developed many, many of the leading front of science and understanding that its CO2 increased and change the temperatures in the 1950s. And then we had the Intergovernmental Panel of Climate Change, run by the United Nations. Their first report in the 1990s said if we didn't do anything about climate change, you would get heat. Heat waves, droughts, wildfires, torrential rainfall, landslides, sea level rise, what, um, coral bleaching, all of these have come to pass. Climate change on a local or a city level is difficult to do, but climate change in general is pretty straightforward science because we know how the Earth works. Weather, the natural phenomenon, are harder to predict. We know that they occur. So El Nino occurs every three to seven years and it can last anywhere between sixteen to eighteen months. Its magnitude can vary. We can have a major El Nino which causes excursions in temperatures of several degrees, or you can have a minor El Nino that lasts maybe just six months. We cannot predict that. All we can look at is how fast the Pacific Ocean is warming up. And the fact that it's warming up faster than we've ever seen before, therefore, a scientist would think, well, if it's warming up at this rate, it's going to be a major El Nino. All right. All what right. are the impacts about this? Well, you know, El Nino, the El Nino Southern Oscillation, is one of these uh, natural climate variability that have global teleconnections. It changes the climate on the whole of the planet. It has hot spots. One of the hot spots is Southeast Asia. In Southeast Asia, it will get hot, it will get dry. If it gets dry, you're going to have drought conditions, problems with water availability, soil moisture is going to dry out, so therefore we'll have extensive forest fires. Extensive forest fires causes horrendous air pollution. We saw that. We saw that with the cities in the United States because of the drying uh, drying out of soils in Newfoundland, causing the forest fires. The particulate matter from those forest fires went to New York, D.C., Chicago and
0: Detroit. All right, let's bring in uh, Edward Lau, founder and executive director of uh, The Green Earth. Good morning, Mr. Lau. Good morning. Thanks for joining us this morning. Um, So we we just heard from uh, Professor Horton. Of course, he's saying that uh, the increase in uh, temperature is uh, is a concern. But what he's most concerned about is is actually the reaction from the public. There's no panicking about it. And world leaders have Mm. not been holding press conferences uh, Mm. about this. So, Mr. Lam, how concerned, I mean, in your view, should should we be about this uh, new record high temperature?
4: Yeah, we should be, I think, the uh, uh, whole population, especially the political leaders, should be getting the uh, very serious warning signal from this extremely uh, high temperature. And they keep, in two consecutive days, uh, the temperature record being broken. And... uh, this is not just a worldwide problem, and look at Hong Kong, our uh, uh, political leader doesn't really say a word about how we should do in a city to uh, suppress the uh, uh, keep on growing of the greenhouse gas emissions. Now, just a few days ago, the government released the uh, total city's uh, greenhouse gas emission uh, data. Which it says the uh, emissions of greenhouse know, of twenty twenty one is four percent higher than that of twenty twenty, and the total amount is thirty four point seven million tons of CO two equivalent. And this four percent rise, they said, uh, it was due to the revival of the, uh, local economic activities and more demands of uh, electricity usage. Now, we, li- need, we don't need them to tell us that we said, this is quite straightforward, but we want the government leaders to tell the public then through what ways that we can suppress the increase of these greenhouse gas emissions, how can we save the energy, how can we reduce in recent gas this is the key message we are all looking for. But it is a vacuum. I'm I'm so disappointed. All
0: right, and uh, Kitty Tam from Civic Exchange, what was your view on this? All, all of this about about the uh, record temperature, and also what the uh, Hong Kong government is doing about it. Hi. Um,
5: so I actually have a quite similar view as Professor Benjamin Houghton, that um, I feel the media has has been like sensational about this uh just single weather event, but uh actually we should talk more about on the trend what happened over the hundred and fifty years after the industrial revolution uh so for example, in Hong Kong, we can see that for the very hot days uh we have increased from uh two to three times every year to now like over twenty times a year um and then um the, Cold days has decreased from 29 times a year to now is uh, 50 15 times. So with the IPCC AR6 report just launched earlier this year, it has predicted there will be more frequent extreme weather. So in, it implies that in Hong Kong, we will have even more hot days and nights, and then we will have even more heavier rainfall uh, within a shorter period of time so it's a signal for the hong kong government to act on this even more urgent climate issue so um, for the hong kong government actually they have done their fundamental responsibility under the paris agreement which uh, they are being the first chinese city as a special uh, uh, sar uh, to announce that they will be climate neutral by Uh, uh, 2050, carbon neutral by 2050. So actually it's it's quite good and then they will also phase out coal. But then we need to act more. The government need to uh, assess whether the public is ready for a more ambitious uh, goal and target um, in the next climate action plan which uh, should be announced in uh, or before 2026. Yeah. Uh, uh, um, yeah and yeah hello kitty um you mentioned
3: that hong kong government has pledged to be carbon neutral by 2050 and i understand they've also committed to halving carbon emissions by 2035 could could you um you know, could you could you talk us through what has been done so far and in your view um you know do, do you think is adequate and what more can be done going forward mm.
5: yes so actually back in uh, 2018, the government has uh, this um, agreement uh, update with the electric uh, the power company on uh, having this feed-in tariff, which is to promote uh, more renewable energy on the rooftop of uh, the buildings. And uh, we can see that actually there's more renewable energy uh, by our local community or by business. But then how to do more is that actually this agreement between the government and the power company will be updated later this year. So in this agreement, scheme of control agreement, they can uh, work more, for example, uh, for the energy and use data, they can actually um, have a more updated data showcase to the public because right now we can only see uh, what happened two years ago and it's not like so updated right now and then we don't know whether we are doing enough and then we cannot compare with others who is doing better. So for this one they can improve and then also for the um, electric vehicle, the government has actually done a lot of work to promote this but... There's not enough fast charging facility in Hong Kong right now. So the government can work with the power sector to improve all this grid infrastructure to promote the development of all these electrical vehicles so that more than the private cars, not only private cars, but also trucks or bus, like the heavy vehicles can also transit to a more cleaner energy.
3: And Kitty, um, cutting carbon emissions obviously is quite important, but that's only one part of the equation. Removing carbon in the atmosphere is also quite important, and do we know what Hong Kong is doing in that regard?
5: You mean me, removal? Yeah, Removing carbon that's already in the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the solutions to remove the carbon is the carbon sink. And actually, Hong Kong, we have uh, a lot of uh, country park right now. Um, so I think like 40, 40% of our land is country park. So I think the Hong Kong government is doing quite well on that because they are keeping the country parks. Um, so, so yeah, I, I think that's a very good start. Um but then we actually need to have a clear pathway to know like how much we need, what is good enough. But this number is not clear enough because right now, Hong Kong, uh, we say we have the carbon emission by 2030, but then 2025. But then now we are only 2023. So we still have 12 years ahead. And uh, uh, what I'm worried is that we, we will be the last minute fighter. But this shouldn't be the case. We should like have a five years pathway, we know exactly where we are heading to instead of uh, just uh, 35 and 2030.
0: Right, and uh, uh, and Mr. Lau, Mr. Lau, like um, yes, when yes. we talk about uh, extreme weather or uh, climate change, we, we I mean, apart from uh, looking at how to uh, uh, reduce carbon, we, we also have to look at how prepared we are to deal with the problem, right? Uh, how prepared would you say most places are? Are uh, do they do they have policies and infrastructure in place to uh, recover from climate impacts?
4: Now, uh, Although the government has the uh, 2050 carbon neutrality uh, roadmap launched a few years ago, but the uh, actions from the government, I consider it is uh, not uh, not enough and not fast enough. Uh, take the example of what Kelly just mentioned, the country park. Now, we, of course, need nature-based solutions, such as the uh, vegetation, the uh, uh, ocean. They are the two major nature-based solutions to absorb or to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. Now, on our country parks, we there is not enough trees in the country park. There are a lot of, I mean, low uh, shrubs, other vegetation, but we need to absorb huge amount of CO2. We need big and mature trees. This part of the world government needs to really strengthen and speed up and for government resources, actually, in the uh, reservoir, we have 17 impounding reservoirs owned and controlled by the government. Uh, in many other countries, they will deploy uh, floating photo uh, uh, power generation systems floating on the reservoir to generate uh, zero carbon electricity. And this, our government only has done Several pilot scheme which is very very small scale, this can be enlarged and expand quickly by the government, and this is something the government can have full control on it. Right. And at the same time, government should show the good example of how to cut an energy waste. If you look at some government building, say in the Queensway Government Office in Aberdeen, the uh, auto door. It's all supposed to be closed when there's no one entering. But the auto door is kept locked open and the cool air all escaping out to the external environment. And the government itself is wasting a lot of energy and producing more CO2, uh, 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 which is really unnecessary. Another example is the immigration tower in Wan Chai. When you walk down and look at it, the doors of this of the immigration tower is all locked open. Right. It's, it's ridiculous.
0: Okay. Um, let's go back to uh, Professor Horton. Professor Horton, just now, Mr. Lau and Ms. Cham, they're both talking about different ways. Of course, they're talking about Hong Kong. but talking about different ways uh, um, that we can reduce carbon emission. But uh, when you look at the general problem, would you say that uh, we are on a runaway train now? I mean, even if we reduce carbon emissions, are there things in motion now that uh, can't be undone?
2: Um, Yes, but I mean, I I just want to pick up on on some of these actions that that the previous two guests, they're they're all well and good, but this is an emergency. I, I, I feel as though there's a complete disconnect between what a climate scientist knows what's going to happen to planet Earth and the impact that that will have on every single citizen in Hong Kong... In Singapore, in Southeast Asia, and in the planet. It may not be this month, but it will impact somebody within the next 12 to 18 months. A recent survey in the United States said that 50% of the people had been influenced by a natural disaster. I mean, this is real and it's present and having small-scale projects that were developed in 2018, your government officials in Hong Kong are sending you lies. This is a very big problem. So, and we have a precedent for this only a few years ago called the COVID pandemic. In the COVID pandemic, the government became increasingly aware of the virus could affect the health of the people and therefore they provided medical information your health experts were informing the public on a general daily basis about the problem the same thing needs to happen on climate change i don't know who your leading climate scientist is in hong kong but he needs to be there or she needs to be there in front of the public, discussing the problem, thinking about the impacts. What are the impacts on the health of citizens in Hong Kong of this coming heat wave? What are the impacts financially for the city of Hong Kong? And then what are the solutions that are there on an individual, on a community basis, and on a governmental basis? How are Hong Kong going to lead with China to find the international agreement to bring our temperatures back to equilibrium? It all can be done, it can be done if an individual act, a community act, a governmenting act, and the international community comes together. And it is incredibly serious.
3: And, uh, well,
2: incredibly it's, serious. Well, this... The other thing, to go back to your question, so I get, I get, I don't know, I could say I get passionate, but what I really do is I get incredibly frustrated because we can have the record temperature of any single well, day. Imagine if it was the, I don't know, record stock market or a discovery on cancer or, I don't know, a record soccer transfer of Cristiano Ronaldo going to Saudi Arabia. It made huge headlines. So record temperature in the year, it won't be, there won't be anything on the news today or tomorrow. It will have been forgotten about. And it really shouldn't, because these temperatures indicate the huge amount of heat that the Earth is taking off. And we know as scientists that if we go beyond this critical threshold of 1.5 degrees C above pre-industrial, then the system... All right, Amazing. Professor.
0: All right, Professor Horton. Just hold your thought there for a moment. We'll have to take a short news break. Let's continue our discussion afterwards when we'll be joined by Dr. Liu Junyan from Greenpeace East Asia. Mr. Lau and Ms. Tam, thanks again for joining us this morning. That's uh, Edwin Lau, is the uh, founder and executive director of the Green Earth, and Kitty Tam is an environment conservation expert from Civic Exchange. Now, if you want to ask our guests questions or share your views on today's topics, you can leave a message on our Facebook page, back chat on RTHK Radio 3, email us at backchat at rthk.hk or give us a call on 233 And here's a quick look at the weather, mainly fine with isolated showers in the morning, very hot during the day with a maximum temperature of around 34 degrees. The very hot weather warning is currently in force, winds moderate southwesterlies. Right now it's 30 degrees, relative humidity 76%. It's now 9.30 with a news summary. Here's Tom Warden.
6: A bill is being gazetted today to improve taxi services. Some of the suggestions include allowing cabs to carry up to six passengers and imposing a penalty point system to punish bad behaviour by drivers. Another proposal is to allow owners to form their own taxi fleets. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Beijing on a four day visit aimed at easing tense relations between the world's two largest economies. The visit comes just weeks after Secretary of State Anthony Blinken visited China. And NATO's Secretary-General has indicated that the alliance is closely observing the activities of the Wagner paramilitary forces and their leader, Yevgeny Prigozhin, following their short-lived mutiny in Russia. Jan Stoltenberg's comments came after the leader of Belarus said Mr. Prigozhin was back in Russia. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. My friend and I started smoking in our teens. I quit two years ago after knowing he had a stroke. The doctor said there is a strong link between stroke and smoking. Five years after quitting, the risk of stroke can be reduced to that of a non-smoker. Health is the most important thing for me and for my family. I will never smoke again. Quit now. Call 1-833-183. The government has announced proposals on improving governance at the district level. The chief and deputy chief secretaries for administration will personally lead and coordinate district governance. People of different experiences and professions who are familiar with district affairs may enter district councils through various channels. District councils will focus on district affairs and collect and reflect public views to better serve the people. Improve district administration, build a better community.
0: Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Rainbow Leung and me, Janice Wong. Still with us on the program is Professor Benjamin Horton, Director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at Nanyang Technological University. And joining us now is Dr. Liu Junyan, Climate and Energy Program Manager of Greenpeace East Asia. Good morning, Dr. Liu. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. Now, um, just before the news, um, Professor Horton was talking about uh, climate preparedness, basically, but uh, we'll go back to that in a moment. And uh, let's uh, go to uh, um, the situation in, uh, in, in China on the mainland. Um, can you tell us uh, what is the situation like on the mainland, uh, which has just recorded the uh, highest number of hot days on record in the first half of this year?
1: Well, um, the, the temperature here in Beijing is like record breaking. Uh, I've never seen such a, uh, heat wave that ever took place, uh, in this, such northern places, uh, like Beijing's temperature has already exceeded 40 degrees for at least four times, um, just from June to today. So, um, this extreme heat wave, uh, in the northern part is definitely a, a sort of, um, a strong evidence of climate change that um, we have not never seen such disastrous heat wave ever.
0: Right. Well, what about uh, extreme weather conditions? We've uh, heard on the news this, this week about Chongqing being hit by torrential rain. Has the number of extreme weather events or, or natural disasters increased as a result of a rise in temperature?
1: This is definitely an extreme weather event. The uh, the rainfall, um, the records of the rainfall has breaking the historical record, and also we noticed that uh, um, it is although there's no um, direct attribution uh, research to say identify the direct connection between climate change and this flood. Particularly, uh, but it's definitely its conclusion that climate change is bringing a a very abnormal atmospheric conditions in the southern part right now, like the very strong uh at a very southern uh location, the subtropical high and
0: stronger monsoon season et cetera et cetera mm. right professor horschen what's your take on this i mean these um some of these uh, abnormal uh weather conditions it, it, is it all down to climate change? can we say that
2: yes. Yes. Simple as that. I mean, and as I said earlier in, in, in this interview, it was predicted in the 1990s. And there are a variety of examples where we can, the science is called attribution of human-induced climate change to any extreme weather event. And if we look at some of the recent ones, um, so... In the U.S. right now, they have a heat dome over Texas and some of the southern states of the United States where we have temperatures in excess of 45 degrees C in triple digits. And so some science has been looking at the attribution, and without climate change, this level of warmth was around a one in 500-year event. Because of climate change, the probability of these type of events is once every three years.
0: Right. And uh, Dr. Liu, I mean, uh, earlier and earlier before the news, I was saying that uh, Professor Horton, he was talking about uh, climate preparedness. Um, What is uh, the mainland doing right now? I mean, to cope with these uh, changes.
1: Uh, Mainland China has already issued a climate adaptation plan to 2035, which is a very new one. Uh, But because the mainland is so big and the impact of climate change is quite different from places to places. So the strategy uh, can be quite different. For example, like the northern part, we noticed this experiencing uh, heatwave this year. However, uh, they also experienced a lot of extreme rainfall last year and uh, 2021. Uh, and also we noticed that some places where uh used to be very dry, used to be very Hard, but now they're also experiencing um, extreme windfall, for example, like Zhengzhou in 2021. So uh, the, the, the plan is good, but how to implement it and how to identify uh, the specific climate risk that's threatening this place uh, is quite different. Uh, I Notice some places, for example, like uh, Beijing has already started this uh, uh, early warning system, uh, like, um, for example, like during this extreme weather event, if the Meteorological Bureau issued a red alert, uh, the Emergency Bureau will also say, uh, okay, we're going to do this. The students shall stop all outdoor activities and the outdoor workers shall have this, this kind of guarantees during the uh, high-temperature period, etc. But... This is a place uh, this is a, like took place only in the um urban area, but for those rural areas, we noticed the preparedness is rather bad for example, as you mentioned the Chongqing floods, it, it took place in a a very rural area uh, a mountainous area where the infrastructure was uh, less developed and also uh, because it's a mountainous area it's easy to bring uh, more cascades. Uh, impacts like the landslides, like debris flows, et cetera, and also uh, more senior residents in these villages because most of the young people uh, migrate to the city, um, which means these places are kind of a more at risk uh, during this extreme weather event. Uh, and Dr. Lil
3: on flooding, I know China has focused on building infrastructure projects like dams and dikes and drainage systems. Are, are, are these not working to prevent the flooding that we are now that we are now seeing in Chongqing?
1: I think the, more, more, one of the most important reasons is that uh, is our standard uh, uh, following the trends of climate change. For example, as all of this uh, um, infrastructure, they are built Based on a previous our previous uh, experience uh, what kind of uh, rainfall what kind of flood we're going to experience say in the next 50 years. however, the climate change kind of uh, is developing only in your way, which mm-hmm. means that we are experiencing more extreme weather events that beyond our experience then this kind of infrastructure is kind of um, I, I should say it's uh, uh, less Prepared hmm. uh, cannot fit, cannot meet the requirements of future climate change trends. That's the thing, and so, but there's also a dilemma that we cannot build the infrastructure that to uh, even higher standard that not considering uh, its limits, not considering the of economic uh, cost, etc. So, uh, what can we do? I think it's uh, a we need a more sort of a silo break. Uh, emergency system, uh, not only offering w- early warning uh, like weather alerts or blue alerts, but also that how we can. And manage people, how uh, how we can sort of encourage people, encourage everyone to protect themselves. And we, the, the government, offer more guarantee to, to these most vulnerable communities. All
0: right. Professor Horton, um, you you're talking about uh, climate preparedness before the news when you listen to what uh, Dr Liu is talking about, uh, about uh, actions taken on the mainland. Is that, uh, is that uh, good enough?
2: Well, I think there is two things that need to happen. There needs to be a short-term response and a medium to long-term response. I mean, the short-term response is that climate change is here now. It's not going to go away. So how do you deal with, in the short-term, high heat um, causing heat stress? So you need to have I heard on when I was listening to your news that there was information that this is a high heat alert for Hong Kong, 34 degrees C. But then that needs to be followed by, well, what should people do with temperatures of 34 degrees C and humidity in excess of 70 percent? So there needs to be... A response plan so people know how to deal with this high heat be that cooling centers, be that air being out of the midday sun, so changing how you use construction workers, um, communication, looking after the elderly, looking after the young. On the medium long term, basically there has to be a redesign of cities to try and cool them. More people live in cities on planet Earth than lived on the whole of the planet 15 years ago. We've had this huge urban migration, so we need to solve the climate change issue within a city. And that really brings... uh, putting nature back within a city, having waterways, having trees and vegetation and open fields, because they have natural cooling properties. And then urban design must change. Urban design must change to try and cool the cities, because then you can start to alleviate some of the impacts of greenhouse gases. So you've got to have a short and a medium to long-term solution of this, because climate change, it's not going away. We can make decisions about how bad it's going to get, but it's not going away because carbon dioxide as a greenhouse gas stays in the atmosphere for hundreds of years and its response on the oceans and the ice sheets happens over thousands of years. So it's not going away, we have to learn to live with it, but we desperately can't make it get any worse. We really, really can't.
0: All right, Professor H- H- um, <laughs> Professor, I- I've got a, a Facebook message here. Maybe you can help answer some of the questions. It's from Michael. And uh, he says, uh, what a one-sided discussion. Some points, uh, the contributor claim this is the hottest the planet has ever been. And then his question is, Is the uh, carbon dioxide level the highest it's ever been? And uh, are electric vehicles a real solution to total carbon footprint? And uh, he also says, is is it is really from beginning to end worst for the planet? I don't really get that bit. Maybe he should uh, make it clearer next time. And most of all, and he says uh, most of all, most of government solution. Most of all, the government solution is uh, about control and taxing its citizens, and, and that's a comment from Michael, um, Professor Horton. Do you have any response to that? I mean, about the uh, carbon dioxide um, levels and electric well, levels? Well, it's just,
2: uh, a one-sided argument. Well, it's a one-sided argument because ninety-nine percent of all sciences. Um, know that climate is changing and it's due to human-induced factors. I mean, you could have on your radio show to give an equal argument—99 versions of me and then one denier. So really, it's a one-sided argument because we follow the laws of physics. When you raise temperatures, ice melts. Do you want? Does someone want to disagree with that? I don't think anyone would. About it being the warmest temperature, I didn't say that. I said that on Monday and Tuesday was the warmest day since records began. The decade is the warmest decade for around 1,500 years where we can get data. When we look at the century, it's the warmest century for several thousand years. We know that around 120,000 years ago, temperatures were around one degree C warmer than today. That was because we had different amounts of solar radiation being received by the Earth. That is not a cause for, um, well, it's actually a cause for concern because when we had our temperatures one to two degrees C warmer than today, our our sea levels were five to seven meters higher. So we know when we go back into the past we know what the impacts of rising temperatures now carbon dioxide again it's one of the things we live in such a fortunate time that your listener can ask a question which may seem like people don't know the answer to that when was the last time our carbon dioxide levels were this high well we do know this factor because in the ice cores of antarctica There are layers of ice that have air bubbles trapped within them. The air bubbles record the atmosphere at which that ice was deposited. We have not seen the carbon dioxide values that we have in our atmosphere, which are now around 420 parts per million by volume. We have not seen that for the last 800,000 years.
0: Right. And, and professor- Indeed,
2: we can make an estimate. I'll just finish this. We can make an estimate that the last time we have received values this high was 2.8 million years ago. 2.8 million years ago, temperatures were 3 to 5 degrees C warmer than today, which is exactly where the climate models are heading, and our global sea levels were 10 to 20 metres higher.
0: Right, I'll we just- have
2: all the data, all the models that you need. Right, professor great questions but I
0: can answer them right Professor Horhan I have uh, another email here it's uh, from Professor Richard fielding and uh, he's uh in support of what you've been saying he says uh, you asked what is being done to deal with the rapidly accelerating climate destabilization and the short answer is a catch up we are far too slow and way behind the curve in terms of what is needed as your Singapore guest states this is so critical we do not recognize just how bad this is going to be and that is the problem we are following what is happening today with one or two year lags whereas there needs to be a Marshall plan level response to prevent the worst effects for example meat x imports here are contributing to amazonian destruction which is pushing carbon into the air in massively greater amounts than hong kong is taking out by a few solar panels and uh, that email is from professor richard fielding and uh, Professor Horton, any, any, anything to add to that? I mean, he, he mentioned that the Amazon rainforest disappearing. I mean, there have been talks about the Amazon rainforest disappearing within a generation. So, is, I mean, just finally, is this just going to get uh, worse and worse? Well,
2: the thing about it, is, I mean, again, so there was um, your, your, your listener gave a problem and then gave a solution to think about our food supply. Why is it that we are destroying the Amazon rainforest, which is our the lungs of our planet, for cattle production? Why why are we doing that? Why aren't we living more sustainably? The the, the issue with climate change is it's very, very serious, obviously. I've tried to bring this across. But also, it's not doom and gloom, because we have all the solutions. Renewable energy is cheaper than coal, natural gas and petroleum. We know that if we preserve the Amazon rainforest, preserve our coal, look after our oceans, we store carbon. We have the technology to capture carbon out of the atmosphere and store it underground, but it hasn't been invested in at scale. So we have all these solutions. What we're really struggling with, what we're really struggling with is communicating, communicating the urgency, the severity, and then the hope. That's what we need. I mean, and you know, like I'm a climate scientist and I can go into my office and I can collect data and I can run models. But I need help from guys like you who are in the business of communication to understand the urgency and get that out to the public. So the public are going to want they're going to want their governments to act. They're going to want to work in a company that values the environment they want to be in a community that looks after nature and they want to be an individual that is in harmony with planet earth so it's down really i can put i can take the ball that was in my court for a long time understanding the science and i'm now putting it in your court it's the communicators need to get this message across so people want this to happen
0: all right, uh, Professor Horton, uh, we have to leave it here for now. Thanks again for joining us this morning. and That's uh, Professor Benjamin Horton, Director of the Earth Observatory of Singapore at Nanyang Technological University. Many thanks again also to uh, Dr Liu Junyan, Climate and Energy Program Manager of Greenpeace East Asia. It's now 9.50 and in a moment, we'll find out more about the new Kowloon City-themed walking trail. <laughs>
4: 25 years of public service broadcasting. Stay tuned with Hong Kong. Hi, I'm Michael Tin, Roundtable Legislator. I want to congratulate RTHK on its uh, 95th birthday. And I've always been a fan of RTHK. I think over the years they've done a very good job balancing the needs of citizens to have transparency and factual use. So I congratulate them, and I believe that they will continue to do the same.
6: Ninety-five years of public service broadcasting. 95 stay, years. Tuned stay tuned. Stay tuned. With Hong, Hong Kong. Kong. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on two double three double eight two double six and have your say.
0: The 6.5 kilometers Kowloon City-themed walking trail is the longest in Hong Kong and it has just opened to the public this week. To tell us more about it, we're now joined on the line by Bill Severs, the uh, licensed, uh, licensed tour guide and founder of Streets of Hong Kong Premium Tours. Good morning, Mr. Severs. Good morning. Thanks for joining us on the program. So, Hi, you? have you had a chance to visit the uh, new trail yet? I live on the new trail. You live mm-hmm. on the new trail. <laughs> so, so what yeah. do you think about the trail?
7: Well, oh, it's not so new to me. I've been living in Tokawan for almost twenty years now. Oh. And uh, I've been very much aware of the this is a hidden gem. You know, that's a cliche, hidden gem, but this neighborhood starting from Hung Hom and actually from Won Po, running through Tokawan and then to Kowloon City, um, evaded development because it was right next to the old airport and the developers weren't interested in developing here because they couldn't build tall buildings. So the old neighborhood basically remained intact. And not only that, there are things in this neighborhood which um, Hong Kong people historically have held very close to their heart. There was something called Sacred Hill, which uh, had a big boulder on it dedicated to the two boy emperors who were the last emperors of the Song Dynasty. and. Most real Hong Kong people, native Hong Kong people, know that story. And that just happens to be part of the neighborhood. And the other thing that people who don't come from, a lot of people who who don't come from Hong Kong know about it, certainly a lot of people in Hong Kong know about it too, is the old walled city that no longer stands. But the park in Kowloon City, the walled city park, does a very good job. They've got um, the old Yaman in there, which is the old administrative office, you know, um, uh, following the Confucian political and administrative system, that's still standing there and they've got um, all kinds of old pictures there of what the walled city looked like at its heyday, which was basically in the fifties and sixties and then but also what the fort looked like well before that and the fort dates back into the nineteenth century but truthfully um that that area around Kowloon City was inhabited by there was a town there. I tell tell people that's probably the oldest neighborhood in in Hong Kong because there was a village there. Um, And the purpose was there was a lot of economic activity relating to the salt farms that were in this neighborhood. So all this stuff interrelates, and it creates a very interesting story. And I would say up until recently, um, it's been off the radar, certainly for tourists and but i've been a tour guide for six years now i've been bringing people through this neighborhood into kowloon city and then all the way up to diamond hill and every time i i can tell you hundreds of tours i've done this way and people all thank me and say bill i never really would have seen anything like this and you know coming into hong kong thank you very much for showing this to me and i really understand a lot more because when i say understand a lot more There's two sides of Hong Kong. Actually, there's three sides. We're talking about two sides. There's what's on Hong Kong Island. Everybody knows about that. That's where the colony began. But what's on this side and what you can see still in this neighborhood because there are traces of it, is what Chinese life was like in this area. Now, you can go into the new territories. I'm not saying this is the only place where you can try to figure that out. But this is very handy because it's right in the center. It's very close to all the hotels, so visitors can come here and see it. And there are a lot of nice things they like, you know. Kowloon City is, is everybody, a lot of people, Hong Kong people know, that's where you go for Thai food because mm. that's where the Thai, you know, people in Hong Kong are centred. That's their neighbourhood there. And um, so... and we ha- Go ahead. Uh,
3: Bill, so, so all the landmarks, landmarks and sites that you've mentioned, um, are they... All covered by the kowloon themed walking trail because I understand there are five yeah. five separate trails.
7: If you look at the five separate trails, you're going to pass just about everything. It's six, uh, They say it's six point five kilometers. You can't do that in one day, but you can walk through this neighborhood in one day uh, and 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 see the big you know points of interest. Um, and what what one way to do that if you're a local person, but I, I take tourists and visitors this way too. I also take local people who've who lived there all their lives and I show them this stuff and they say you know, I didn't really understand that I could still go into sitting at Cha-Cha-Tang that looks like this, you know and then go out into the market that looks like that um, and mm-hmm. one way to do it is from um, from the Star Ferry Terminal. You catch a bus there. Mm-hmm. From there you catch the number 5C. Okay. Get on the 5C, and then you're going basically straight through the whole terrain where this trail is, starting with the Ganyam Temple in Hung Hom, which, you know, there are a lot of interesting temples. There's Pak Tai and Wan Chai. There's uh, Man Mo, you know, in, in, in Xiong One. But that that gunyam Temple in Hung Hom, I'm a photographer. I do photography tours, too. That is a beautiful and very interesting And that neighborhood in Hong Kong has all kinds of interesting restaurants and mahjong, handmade mahjong stores and and all kinds of other interesting things that you can find. And what's nice about what they've done with this Kowloon City themed walk is I had to figure all this stuff out by myself, reading Hmm. history books and articles and this and that. That's how I know it. But now they've taken it and they've made it much easier for people to go on their own and figure it out by looking at these plaques on the street and, and using their phone and looking at the QR codes, uh, using the QR codes, and then they can get all the narrative, you know. Um, so if you want to do it on your own, you can do it on your own now, or you can go to the people who have organized this, and they have, I don't know how regularly they do it, but they have um, uh, organized tours, and I'm sure, I, I haven't really been in touch with them, but I'm sure I discussed on the program um, another location that recently opened up. And one of the problems is that when they do these tours for the public, they never do them in English or rarely. So it's very difficult for people to be able to avail themselves of that. Yeah, They'll have to find somebody like me or they'll have to go and dope it out on their own. So that's why having these plaques um, and having maps on the Internet and breaking up the trail into five parts makes it easier for somebody who really is determined to to look at this and say, okay, I want to do this this Saturday. What are we going to do? Let's look at the map. You know, they have a similar thing set up for Wan and Central. Um, or oh, they call it Old Town Central. And they have another map. This is the tourist board set up um, for Shem Shui Po. Yeah, now we have it for Wan, And I think that's very important mm-hmm. because, like I said, This area, with what went on with the wall city and the airport, and what went on in Tokauan in Hong Kong, which has a very big part of the story of how Hong Kong became industrialized.
0: All right. All right, Mr. Severs, thanks a lot for for joining us this morning. And uh, Rainbow, so if you don't have any plans this weekend, maybe you can visit this new walking trail. I've actually been on the website. It's very good. And just for the benefit of our listeners, it's Kowloon City Walking Trail, one word, dot HK. All right, thanks a lot. And uh, that's uh, Bill Severs, a licensed tour guide and founder of Streets of Hong Kong Premium Tours. Many thanks also to you who commented or emailed us today and to our guest presenter, Rainbow Lung and producer Raphael. Backchat will be back on Monday with Danny Gitchings and Mike Rouse.